Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we have a whole cast of characters with us today. It's uh, This is, you know, 20 years of .NET month coming up. Coming up, yeah. That's right. This is the end of January, but coming up in February, is the, the 20th anniversary is the 13th of February. And for the whole month, we're going to do uh, shows about the 20 years of .NET. Right. But today, we're talking pro microservices in .NET 6. Uh, Sean Whitesell is here, Rob Richardson, and Matthew Groves. But before we talk to them, I just mm-hmm. want to say hi to my friend Richard Campbell. Hey, man. How are you, man? I'm okay. You know, they plunk, plunk it along. I got nothing, nothing uh, much to complain about. Give us an update on Zach the dog. So Zach's in the palliative care phase now. So uh, uh, he's 17 years old. Uh, he can't, he can smell a bear. So I've had him huff about bears cutting across the yard again, but he can't. But he's more like, oi, (laughs) you darn bears, get out of here. But he, um, it's pretty, we're pretty sure he has a brain tumor. So he's been having seizures for the past two years and, uh, they got really bad in December. And, and so we put him, we added prednisone to his mix. This dog's now getting meds four times a day and prednisone seems to have shrunk the tumor at least for a period of time. And so wow. at the moment, he is perky. He he wants to walk every day. He certainly doesn't want to miss a meal. He feels really good. He can't go upstairs, but he can go down them. Uh, he's a little demanding for a crotchety old man. Uh, right. But we only, And some dogs, this will work for a year, uh, but it's more likely it'll be a few months. But we both agreed yeah. that as soon as the seizures are more than one a week, then we'll stop. He's a .NET Rocks dog. Yeah, he's been around for a I long mean, time. I really get is. asked about him all the time. And yeah, 17 years, like pretty much yeah. he's been around the whole time I've been doing this show with you. That's right. So yeah. he's, I, I mean, the good news is he's comfortable uh, and content at the moment. Uh, the, the seizures are harder on us than they are on him, he, but it takes him about two days to recover from them. So more than one seizure a week is just he's always down. And that's not, that's no quality of life. So that we've, we, we had to pick a line. That's the line we picked. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and then we, you know, we've done, I feel good about it, Carl. Really? I do. Cause we've done yeah. everything. Right. right. Like we've run through and all the you, options. Let's, let's face it. I mean, 17 years is a long, oh no, he's definitely in the voodoo land now. Oh yeah. How old this dog is. Right. Like, right. I mean, the neighbors are like, how do you keep that dog alive yeah. so long? And right? still, and that's the crazy part. And still out walking around. Like he bumps into yeah. a lot of stuff cause he doesn't see that well. 
but right. uh, but he's he still don't look up. so good. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> the sad. The crazy part is he's very handsome, right? Like he's, yeah, yeah. he's all silver. The uh, coat looks great. You know, yeah. this dog eats a half a pound of or a quarter pound of fish a day, right? Like right. he's got an oily coat, uh, yep. but he and he, yeah, so he's but he's he's a little broken. So uh, it's tricky to live with him. You just got to manage things. You know, he starts pacing for any reason. You better get him outside because he's gonna pee. A little, yeah. little incontinent. <laughs> oh, well, you, you know, Kelly and I don't have pets. It's a conscious decision because you know we we don't we don't want them. I've lived with dogs my whole life, border collies, when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, and I, I I'm going to take a long time. I'm going to be a mess when he's gone, and you know it as well as I think of everybody course. else does. And I'm yeah. going to take a break. We want to travel a lot, and having an animal makes that hard. The girls yeah. are moved out. You know, we've in a new phase of our life over the pandemic time, and uh, so things right. will be different. That being said, I didn't want this dog, but sometimes you're outnumbered one to one. So yeah. Speaking of COVID time, Rob Richardson just posted yeah. in uh, in Zoom here. And Rob, it's okay if you want to jump in here. Uh, what is this website? Covidstandardtime.com. And this website just, is so awesome. It just shows <laughs> the date as of March 2020. Right. It's yeah. today is March 691st, 2020. 2020. <laughs> well, that's going straight into the show notes. That's all there is to that. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Rob. And now let's play the crazy music for a little segment we call Better No Framework. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? All right, well, this is being recorded the day before I'm about to record what I'm going to announce. Oh, okay. So time shifting being what it is, hopefully on Tuesday the 25th, I will be publishing a blazer train with Mr. Chris Sainty, who has uh, been very instrumental in uh, developing tools for blazer and also, uh, you know, being a great part of the community, the Blazer community. Um, he's coming on the show to talk about containerizing Blazer applications. Nice. So this being, you know, a microservices show, I thought this would be an, a nice uh, thing to talk about. So if you go to blazertrain.com, scroll down all the way to the bottom, you, will, you should see, you know, in a perfect world, you should see uh, containerizing Blazer applications with Chris Sainty. And uh, for, he, he wrote a blog post about this, but he hasn't updated it in a while. So it's good for him, too. We're, we're just coming together. Some people have requested this topic. And um, obviously, a Blazor application is just another ASP.NET Core application on the server side. On the client side, it's literally analogous to a static HTML JavaScript page. So there's, uh, there's good stuff to learn there. I hope you uh, get into it. Hope you check it out. At what point do you flip these videos over and, you know, show the newest show first rather than the oldest show? Well, you know, I think your your uh, question is great. And I think that can be solved with a sort by button. Now you're just talking at crazy the top talk, of the Mr. page. Mr. Franklin. I, I, yeah. And I think that's an easy thing to do. Yeah. Of course it is an maybe easy it, thing to do. Maybe it's easy in Blazor. Well, yeah. As a matter of <laughs> fact, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had to do that with JavaScript, I don't know if it would be easy yeah. or not. But uh-huh. uh, Blazor, it's just a... Uh, don't worry. I'm sure there's a there's a JavaScript library out there for you. Oh, of course there is. Yeah, of course there but is. But you have to uh, have this whole stack and this whole tribe. Yeah, I don't get yeah. technical. All right. All right. So that's what I got. Cool, Who's man. talking to us, Mr. Mr. Campbell? Ah, I grabbed a comment off a show. 1770. 
which you did back in December 2021, not that long ago. I think it was March 500 and something, uh, where we talked to Paul <laughs> Yukonewitz about microservices and Dapper. Very well-received show, too. You know, like, Great hey, show. Yeah, lots of folks are excited about the show. This comment comes from Aaron Olds, who says, of all the podcasts I subscribe to, this is the only one where I make time to sit, listen, and learn. And this episode was perfectly timed. I just changed jobs and have been tasked with architecting version three of a microservices backend for an e-commerce company. So thanks again for the great show. So yeah, we talked about, I mean, modern services, uh, uh, microservices architectures and Dapper and so forth. I guess it was well-targeted for him. And we're going to do more of that. I mean, you know, Aaron might have a book for you too. Just hang on for about an hour. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> little, little, little prequel there. So Aaron, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. You know, uh, watching reality shows, you get used to what they called in literature class foreshadowing, <laughs> right? When somebody says, you know, if I don't do this right, I'm really going to screw myself. That's when you know they're going to screw themselves, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's how that's, that's going to go. And that's what you call foreshadowing. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Uh, you know, t uh, tweet tweets are microservices, aren't they? Isn't everything a microservice? In the Every end, message should be should be a service. Perhaps that's true. <laughs> I don't think it's true. So if you have a quadruped, does the quadruped <laughs> do foreshadowing? And if you're a biped, is it now by shadowing? By shadowing. <laughs> I love this group. <laughs> this group is awesome, and I can't wait to hang out and geek out with them. That was Rob Richardson. Uh, he's a software craftsman building web properties in ASP.NET and Node, React, and Vue. He's a Microsoft MVP, a published author, a frequent speaker at conferences, user groups, and community events and a diligent teacher and student of high-quality software development. You can find his talks at robrich.org slash presentations and follow him on Twitter at at Rob underscore Rich. Also, Sean Whitesell is here. He's a Microsoft MVP and an ASP.NET insider. He has been the president of Tulsa.NET user group since 2009 and a cloud architect with Token X, Token EX. Sean has been programming and playing with electronics for over 20 years as of this recording. He also has multiple black belts in martial arts, so don't mess with him. <laughs> I know I won't. And also here is Matthew Groves. And Matthew is a guy who loves to code and get involved in the developer community. He is the author of AOP in .NET, a Pluralsight author, and is also a Microsoft MVP Gentlemen, we have so much MVPness in this podcast. It's not even funny. Oh, so I don't me. know why you're laughing because it's not funny. Nothing's funny. The MVPness no. that we have. Yeah. Everything's fine. We're fine. We have more MVPness than anybody right now. Apparently. All right. Anybody want to jump in? <laughs> Maybe at least <laughs> align, align the voices. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's say hi to Matthew. Matthew? Hi, Carl and Richard. Uh, first time, long time. Can I? Can I say that on That's this kind fair. of show? Yeah. All right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sean? How are you guys? I'm glad to be here. All right. We're glad to have your MVPness with us. And Rob? You heard Rob. Hi. I'm glad to be here. I've got my .NET Rocks mug here. It was a lot of fun to get this back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. Very cool. 
So you guys wrote a book? Yeah. Is that the, uh, is that the big news here? Yeah, and you finally got a book out. You've been, and you've been working on it for a while, too. I think you and I have talked a couple of times of sweating finishing a book, and I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, we had a good conversation about that. I was really jealous of uh, watching the, the was it the seals uh, playing around in the bay there. Um, you were sh- sharing, sharing your Otters. camera at the time. Oh, I think Otter cam? Sure. I think it was actually, it was uh, when the har- harbor seals had, uh, oh, all the seals. had just happened. And so was, all hell was breaking loose in front of the boathouse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been working on this for a while. Um, it started when I was asked if I knew anybody that would uh, could write a book on microservices and .NET. And this is Sean speaking. Yes. And I said, you know, I'd love to take on that challenge. I have been wanting to write a book for nearly two decades. And one of those things where just imposter syndrome type thing, right, kind of held me back for quite some time. When this opportunity came up, I'm like, I got to jump on this. I I really want to tackle it. I just didn't realize the size of the elephant, right? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of bites. It is a lot of bites. um, And... So it was, it was, it's been quite the venture. Um, I, but I also got to a part where, uh, because of time constraints and, uh, and other things, I'm like, I, I'm, I need some help on this. And so I got a hold of a couple of guys that I have met at uh, conferences uh-huh. and have, uh, just really gelled with and said, you know, guys, I could really use some help. And you guys, you want to jump in on this? And both Matthew and Rob said, you know, absolutely. And so I, I owe them quite a bit of, uh, of appreciation for, for helping me out on this. Microservices is one of those topics that's so vast and, and also a little bit reviled lately. In fact, I know that Sean, you, uh, at one point, was it you that called microservices an anti pattern? Uh, it was not me, but I, um, on one of my talks that I have about microservices, I do try to say, don't do them unless you're willing to put forth the effort to do them yeah. well. Yeah. You had some catchy title for it that was sort of like that, but yeah, I think that's, that, that was the sentiment. Yeah. The title was, uh, microservices. The easy way is the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. Right. Matthew, I know you from. Uh, autonomous microservices. You did a, a a talk. I think it was two years ago now, isn't it? I I've delivered that one several times. Mm-hmm. I, I probably uh, at a dev, dev intersection or something delivered that one. And uh, that one is uh, very similar to Sean's session, which I I think is one of the reasons why he probably tapped me. Is it's not just about the nuts and bolts of microservices, but it's about how do you make them be more resilient uh, and um, you know less troublesome. Um, you know, don't don't fall into all those traps that Sean talks about uh, in in the book as well. Because there is a strategy here for building stuff with with as microservices that are more resilient, not less. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, isn't it true that um, that the the issue with microservices isn't so much how do we program them, but how do we design them? How do you chop up your domains into microservices so that it makes sense? And and that I think is a hard thing to sort of standardize on because every domain is different and everything, uh, every situation is, every system is going to turn out differently. And I see Sean uh, nodding his head. Is this kind of where your, you know, the easy way is the wrong way idea uh, came from? Yeah. um, Actually that talk came, 
uh, was developed based on the first chapter of the book. And where I was covering so many, uh, basically I cover microservices as an architecture in, in a broad stroke on the first chapter. Mm. And that's been one of the most um, misunderstood thing about microservices with people jumping into them. They're thinking, well, this is just a different way of developing. Mm. No, it's higher level than that. It's a different way of architecting. Mm. It's a completely different perspective on things. And you kind of hit the nail on the head when we say the word domain. And a microservice is not one-to-one with a domain. But if we think about our problems in domains and what services and um, functionality we can provide as sets of domains, then we can kind of get better understand where should we draw the line that says, yeah. okay, this is going to be a microservice so that it can evolve. And this is, I, I repeat this in my talk over and over. A microservice is an application that should evolve independently of anything else. Right. Well, that was the whole point with microservices, right? Was that the SOA glob that we ended up yeah. building resonated anytime you changed anything, right? Like you tried to get into more agile practices, more continuous development practices. And every time you did an update, all hell broke loose in production. Yeah, exactly. There was, there became tight coupling in a different area. And with SOA, the, so many of the business rules became more centralized, which is more coupling. So with microservices, yeah, it's still service-oriented architecture, but it doesn't have that middle piece of all the rules and such, right? You're, you're pushing that out to the microservices and letting them yeah. f- be able to think and evolve to, uh, by themselves. I mean, I, be more I've always looked at it as instead of crashing the entire back end, you're just crashing the bit you updated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of think of the, the challenge as somebody who wants to set out to do microservices right. It's kind of like building a car or building an engine, right? You kind of need to know auto mechanics before you can design an engine appropriately. And when you're designing an engine, you have to design components of that engine that can fail independently without affecting the other parts of the engine. And, and so you kind of have to have that overall understanding first. And do you, do you think this is where uh, most people fall short is that lack of general understanding of the, of, of what, of auto mechanics and, and the metaphor is of the domain, right? Yeah. We've talked about separating components into different pieces and, uh, you know, we're pretty good at hiding things behind repositories or unit of work patterns or similar things. And so we kind of look at that and we say, okay, so I'm going to create a microservice for my data tier and I'm going to create a microservice for my UI tier and I'm going to create a microservice for my business logic. And that's definitely the not the right seams between our code. No. I like the analogy of, you know, we used to have spaghetti code and we kind of moved to lasagna. We have all these layers. <laughs> and we, as we move from lasagna to ravioli, the ravioli isn't just lasagna bundled up into little balls. Oh, we want to split these vertical pieces and we want to take a slice all the way through that that does data storage and right. presentation and business logic and kind of carve out that separate business domain to be able to accomplish that one little task. We want cupcakes, and- Rob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we want layered cupcakes. <laughs> well, if you're doing cupcake right, you're breaking in half and stacking it so the cream's in the middle anyway. But that's just <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, uh, I don't I, know how that works. Well, but- <laughs> and, and, you know, channeling my inner architect is this whole, 
the residence of change should be in the domain, not in in the uh, not in the feature right. set, right? So right. you have an area, you have that ravioli that is a given domain a subset of the domain. That's what changes. The other ravioli can do their own thing, right? And so in the book, we talk about this um, this shipping system where I need to be able to get parts to a particular thing. And so as we're looking at that domain, it's not just you know how do I accomplish pricing or how do I accomplish shipping? But we have a separate microservice to be able to calculate distance. And that's really nice because that's kind of a self-contained piece where I can say what's the start and end destination and what is the roads between that and I can start to calculate that distance. That's the right size of a microservice, that separate domain. And that brings up another really good point, though, that I've I've heard other people kind of get confused on. It's like, so how many lines of code uh, sh- should it not be a microservice? And it's like, wait, it's not about lines of code. And yeah. it's, you know, well, okay, so maybe just one function. No, 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 no. It's, that's not a, that's not a microservice. You, it's that domain. What service does it right. really serve and what does it serve well? And when we talk about like the auto mechanics, well, what if that is accounting? And you now, okay, so we start with this microservice that does accounting functions. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, uh, accounts receivable and accounts payable just have so many functionalities, but they're also colliding with each other. They need to live independently. So now you're spreading and you're splitting out to different microservices. And the point is that when one of them has an issue, uh, it is handled in that little realm not within the entire application so when a container ship gets stuck in the suez canal for example in the shipping you know realm it it, yes it affects everything but that one thing is the only piece of code that has to worry about it right sometimes you have a singleton and there's really nothing much you can do about it Uh, <laughs> a great example is if you're doing a, a shipping system or an order processing system, uh, as I'm starting to pick items, what if the recommendation engine crashes? Should I not be able to create purchases if I can't get recommendations? Oh, of course not. Yeah. Let's let the recommendation engine crash and die and we'll put in some stub content or you know an advertisement or something or just leave that part of the app blank. And I can still do the purchase path. That's the critical piece. Yeah. We can break off the, those sub pieces into other microservices that accomplish separate domains that can fail or succeed differently. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm being an old guy means I always think about microservices as untangling SOA goo balls. Do you? <laughs> that's what we call them because that's what they were. You Canadians, <laughs> you have a different word for everything. <laughs> But uh, is that the norm still that we're really taking apart existing sets of services and reorganizing them into resonant domains? Or are you getting a chance to build clean and new? It can be both, uh, really. You're, when you're going to want to tear apart a monolith and you want to carve out the existing functionality, it might be a great opportunity to challenge things like, is this still the right programming language that we want to use? Mm. Or, mm. In, yeah. we're, you know, over here, we're still on uh, .NET Framework 3.5, 5, right? And mm. maybe now we can go, okay, we can, we're going to make this journey. We're going to uh, 
jump this hurdle and we're going to go to .NET Core, uh, .NET 6, right? And we're going to make this leap so that uh, we can use the right programming languages for the right job. Now, it provides a lot of those opportunities. Mm. The other thing that it provides is the opportunity for you to tell the customer, all right, so if we go this granular, that means that you're going to have to do X and Y and it's going to take this much money or this much effort or these, this many developers to maintain. But if you combine these uh, realms into a single microservice, then you have these benefits and these drawbacks. I mean, those are the questions for me that that is the challenge of designing microservices. It's getting in there, getting into the customer's uh, domain and and talking through these things with them about how granular they want to make them. Yeah, understanding the seams between their business processes. Right. And since microservices should be treated and loved as an ind- independent application, so then you've got like, should it be in its own repo? Um, mm-hmm. Should it have its own pipeline, CICD pipelines? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it needs it, which also means that you've got more to curate, right? And you've got more to manage. And then you've got security. And, but they're uh, ultimately independent from each other. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and I mentioned this too in, in the talk is if you have a microservice that's to process paychecks, specifically your paycheck, right? You're going to want to add some security to that so that mm-hmm. not only is the information going across the network protected, but maybe you want to also govern who can call that microservice. Yeah. So there's even a lot more to think about at the architectural level, not just what language you use. Exactly. One of the things that we discover as we start splitting things into microservices is that in our monolith, internal methods were function calls. In the realm of microservices, our internal methods have IP addresses. That's kind of frightening. (laughs) Right. That's right. I mean, the whole idea is to decouple, right? Yeah, and and then that's the bigger thing when I think about scaling monoliths is often you're scaling up code that doesn't get called that often. Like, and I, I think you said this obliquely, Sean, in the sense that the you know rule number one when you're in the SOA hole is stop digging. Right? Is that you start making new things as standalone services, uh, so that you're not in making the goo ball bigger. Be even before you start peeling stuff out of the ball. Absolutely, and. And as you're building out these microservices and you're finding out what code needs to be in there and how you're going to govern them, how you're going to build them and manage them, et cetera, you may also get to a point where you're like, wait, this is really not meant. It doesn't need to be its own microservice. Let's go ahead and bring that back in. Let's abandon that piece and leave that in the monolith. But the lessons learned can be applied on the next piece of code that you may want to pull out. Right. Well, and I think that's one of the problems you get into when you start building those standalone services is that there's stuff in the goo ball you need. I love the technical term. And I actually do a whole section of this in the book where it's so easy to create God classes that have the functionality. of, And it just started out as utility library. And now we add HTTP address parsing. And then we're adding an entity framework extension method. And suddenly we have this God class that does all of these things that, oh, by the way, is the base class for all of the things in our application. And our microservices are now huge. Right. Oops. Well, Oops. You're all, and you're also, now you're resonating again. Any changes to the God class break everything. Uh, yes. Eventually you get a chunk of code nobody's willing to work on anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That smells like break up that God class. 
<laughs> and uh, gentlemen, I use that term loosely, I uh, need to take a brief <laughs> break for this very important message. You know, time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun Alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage-based plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. And we're back. It's Donnet Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Heyo. And we're talking to Sean Whitesell, Rob Richardson, and Matthew Groves about their new book, Pro Microservices and .NET 6. And uh, Matthew's been entirely too quiet, so I'm going to harass him now. Matthew. <laughs> uh, and again, I'm aware of some stuff you've done in the past. So talk to me about the problem with databases and microservices. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about with databases and microservices. There's a whole chapter on, on data centralization. Uh, to me, it's uh, you have to make a decision about do I want to um, – well, first the thing you have to do is do decide do I want to run my databases inside of uh, my you know container architecture, Kubernetes, mm -hmm. for instance, which I talk about a little bit, uh, or, or run it outside uh, from a database as a service, like a, like a managed service, like, like Couchbase Capella or something. Right. Yeah, or um, Azure SQL or like pick your flavor. There's a ton of them. Although I will step back then and say – your presumption there is all microservices run in containers. Uh, yeah. So uh, maybe I jumped ahead a little bit, but absolutely. My, my chapter is on containerization, so that's why I bring it up. Oh, but well, that's fair. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I do make the point that in, the, in this chapter, in fact, that you do not need to use Kubernetes, containers, et cetera, to have a microservices architecture. Sure. It's not about any particular right. tool. It's like, as Sean said, it's about a it's architecture. It's design pattern. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a, any kind of autonomous service, no matter how it's hosted or uh, cloudified or containerized or whatever. It's got to be autonomous. That's it. Yeah. But but containers do introduce a bunch of good elements that help you make better microservices, as I understand it anyway. Yes. So they are useful tools, I think. And I, I go through uh, Docker, uh, Docker Compose, and uh, Kubernetes as Three different tools you might use uh, along the way, um, all or none of them. Um, you know, Docker is a great tool, even if you're not developing microservices, it's a great tool for uh, trying out things locally, running services locally, because it's easy to get them running, easy to clean them up. And uh, if you're building a Docker container, you can ship that as a standardized form of shipping something, which mm -hmm. if you're managing a lot of microservices, that makes it much easier to manage that whole collection, that whole ecosystem of services in the architecture. And what's cool is Visual Studio gives you some Docker support built in. So even if you don't plan on using containers in Docker, um, get used to creating projects in Docker and 
you know, in Visual Studio and running them locally. And that way, you know, when it comes time for you to do your microservices, you've you've got the skills with a Z. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the other the next step you can take there is Docker Compose. Yeah. Which allows you to uh, what I use it for is local orchestration, where I'm setting up a development environment that uses multiple services. So I'm setting up my ASP.NET, my database, my messaging broker, uh, and I can orchestrate those with a Docker Compose file, which I can yeah. then, you know, uh, commit into source code for others on my team to uh, you know, mimic the same environment on their machines. So that's a very useful tool for developing a microservice locally. And Docker Compose uh, came before Kubernetes, right? So a lot of people like to think of it as Kubernetes light. Am I right about that? Um, Docker Compose, I don't know if I would compare it directly to Kubernetes. I think Docker Swarm is probably a closer match. Oh, Swarm. Right. Yeah, match. that's what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in terms of more of an orchestration engine, the biggest problem we have right. with, when you start getting into containers is you end up with too damn many containers. Yeah. You would, well, you need a management tool. You certainly need a, a an orchestration tool. You make yourself happier anyway. When I was talking with a CEO uh, about using Azure Kubernetes service, and uh, he's like, you know, help me understand some of the value of Kubernetes. He's like, well, it helps us orchestrate the, you know, the instances of the containers. Now, of course, that's it's different speak for a CEO. He doesn't care about orchestration at all. Right. But what I assured him was, if something was to go wrong in that code, in that thing just takes a dump and it wants to do memory dumps or whatever, and it has to try to reboot or it just dies. The orchestrator, that AKS system can rebuild things, you know, kill off that instance, re put up a new one at two in the morning and I don't get a phone call. Right. Yeah. That's a re real strong resiliency aspect, right? Just being able to come back around again. It's a good metaphor too. You know, if you're, if you're, uh, your ship's, sink in the middle of the night we don't we don't want to get a phone call we just want things to work yeah i'd like a log entry that i can look at in the morning about how right. something bad happened and i recovered and continued working but something bad happened but it's okay yeah it worked out you know in the good right. old days of of hot sql hot failover sql server you'd get a message from sql server that hey we failed over like the, the customer never noticed because we did everything right and it worked. We were scared, scared, snotless because when a SQL server fails over, you're like, but right. why? And, and yeah. the fact that it just did it and just continued on its merry way, you're like, what happened? We had three minutes of downtime. Oh, well, at three in the morning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it came back up. It came back along again. Uh, testing microservices. Because I think the testing strategies are hard. They are. They, they take just as much thought as designing the microservices. And so it's not just about what code you're going to put in there. How are you going to test them? And so, right. yeah, in chapter seven, we talk about, uh, yes, you're going to test your, you should test your microservices and not just do unit testing that test the, you know, your algorithms and, and your, 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 um, your functions within the microservice, but also calling them at the service layer mm -hmm. and, uh, testing at certain conditions, things like that. So we, we also explored how, if you have a microservice calling directly to another microservice, how are you going to test that? And you can use a library called PactNet is, uh, just one idea. But what about the microservices that communicate by messaging? Well, right. in, what about in, queues? Yeah, exactly. 
So in, in chapter five, we talk about messaging, um, uh, paradigms with that. And we use, uh, uh, mass transit on top of RabbitMQ, uh, and gives the, the reader something to build. There's some step by step code in there. So in chapter seven, we talk about testing the microservices that communicate by messaging. Then we also talk about uh, uh, Mass Transit's testing library that it has. So we even go through those steps to make sure that they're covered as well. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking Chaos Monkey, like I've because I've done systems that you know are hard to test because things happen so fast. It's very difficult to get hooks in there. And without disturbing things, right? I mean, the sidecar thing and Docker is great, but um, there are s- times when you need to test between this line of code and that line of code, and you know, without disturbing, you know, the the rhythm of what's going on. And, uh, and so, so that that whole chaos monkey approach seems like a, a really good way to just, just you know. <laughs> it's like it's like chucking the baby overboard. Okay, swim, right? <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah, and it's certainly a challenge of your expectations of the baby too. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> uh, because a lot of people will run Chaos Monkey, and it's intended to. You run it in production. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not just in development or testing and let's see how this thing works. Yes, you should run it there and you should go through those scenarios, but you run it in production to prove you're resilient. Yeah, I was thinking you don't get to Chaos Monkey until you're pretty far down the testing path. Like you have an awful lot of confidence in your system that you're willing to literally have a tool that shuts stuff off randomly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it's really and, interesting to think about this back to something Rob said about uh, you know, if services go down, the way I think about microservice development is you kind of have to treat the other services as if they're completely third parties mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. different companies, different organizations. And if something happens to a third party, you know, if, you know, MailChimp goes down or LaunchDarkly goes down, my application has to be able to handle those third party services. Otherwise, I'm tightly coupling to them. And if they go down, I go down. And that is one of the benefits of microservices that you're just ignoring if you choose to go down that route. So how do you guys feel about tools like poly for resilient strategies? Absolutely suggest them. Absolutely. They, you, you, um, libraries like poly is uh, highly used and I, I highly recommend them that it gives you the opportunity to retry logic as well as exponential backoffs so that you're not um, killing your system. So if you're going to do denial of service, your own uh, other microservices. Been there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think circuit breaker type things. Um, yeah. But it, too, requires some architectural thinking. So now if this third-party service goes down or a secondary microservice that you have, you're going to – and I, I like how Matthew brings it up – is to this microservice should – not care anything about the other microservice, mm-hmm. treat it as it's a third party, as a black box. Mm-hmm. And if the connection there fails, or even a connection to a database, if it fails, how should I react? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we know how you shouldn't react. You shouldn't react by hammer, right. hammer, 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 hammer. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear? How about now? How about now? How about now? How about now? <laughs> well, right, it's right. That, first, you you used to just crash. That's one way. Here, have an ODBC error. Enjoy. But, Enjoy. 
But uh, now, then you, oh, we'll do a retry until we make things explode. Yeah, retry in a tight loop. How's yeah. that going to work? And, and don't forget our favorite error. Like you said, Sean, you, you're creating a denial of service attack. Yeah. And you don't even know it. And it's on your own system. Right. Right. And then you find the, uh, the, the error message that everybody loves, the object reference not sent to an instance of an object. Yes. Right. You'll find those pretty quick too. Object. No, not otherwise found. known as sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right. Right. Richard. Very, very sorry. There's, <laughs> yeah. An error message that doesn't tell you anything other than what you wanted to happen didn't happen. And somebody feels bad about it, but it's not me. Uh, <laughs> but this idea of consider them all external services also speaks to security as well. Right. I mean, this is where we get, uh, I've been living in the IT side of things where we're dealing with the whole zero trust problem. And mm. uh, this architecture lends itself very neatly to each of these APIs, each of these microservices has its own perimeter, is its own, has its own security. As Patrick Hines likes to say, convenience is the enemy of security and vice versa. Yeah, I like that. And that's true. And that's where we can dig into a service mesh that can start to control the communication between our microservices. A service mesh, we can tell it, this service is allowed to contact this service, or this service is down, so just stop trying to retry against it. And the service mesh can then start to facilitate and coordinate the communication between our microservices inside mm. of Kubernetes. So Kubernetes provides the, the service mesh? There are lots of different service mesh providers. Istio is a really famous one. Linkerd is also another uh, service mesh. So you can install that into Kubernetes like you would install anything else. It just happens to have more tentacles. So as you install each microservice, you can have the service mesh deploy a sidecar. And that sidecar can take care of the security between it and other microservices. Hmm. And we did a show with you on Istio a couple of years back, Rob. Like You've been working in it for a while. Yeah. Istio is a lot of fun. But it, but it also speaks to there's an ecosystem of these container management tools or a set of tools around all those container management so you don't have to write this code exactly and the more that you can leverage these common patterns of communication the less you need the god classes baked into your thing or you know the great thing with a service mesh is you can kind of offload https out of your microservices so the microservices just communicate with everything over http but you're still getting that secure tunnel between them Right. Because my microservice mm. proxies to my sidecar that communicates with your sidecar that communicates with your microservice. Wow. Right. So I don't, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just an interesting approach to not having yeah. to deal with that when you're developing, but it, oh, but, but when you're actually running, they're always encrypted. Now we can play with smarter certificates, basically set up some network barriers around all of this as well. So it's like these two could talk because they share, they, they, they know each other's certs. Otherwise, nobody could talk to them. Exactly. And I can offload the cert validation and creation to the service mesh. So each of those sidecars goes and checks in with the service mesh and says, hey, uh, am I allowed to talk to this um, other service? By the way, what's its DNS name? And what's the certificate that I should use to communicate yeah, with it? Yeah, what's its public key? Yeah. Right. Richard, I don't know about you, but I think this might be the most practical uh show we've ever done on microservices. Very. It's What I like about it is it's really coherent. I mean, I'm a little sad there isn't a chapter on security, but that's because I suspect you just yeah. bake security in like you're talking about it the whole time. I did think about whether or not we should include uh, security in that. And the, the 
the problem with that topic is if you're wrong, you're hurting a lot of people mm -hmm. in that, in that realm of security. So it, that one was just a lift that I didn't want to bring. It's understandable. Yeah. Uh, especially because it changes so frequently and, you know, things happen so fast. Um, but, but you do the, the right thing, which is point people to the resources that they need in order Absolutely. to keep up with the latest, uh, things that are going on in security. And we talk about, um, maybe not in the book, but I know, for example, in my talk, and I, I think, uh, the other guys have this as well, that when you do microservices and you're thinking about security, you're thinking about communications, you may think, well, I'm just using a private network. I don't have to have a, a cert or, you know, kind of any kind of uh, encryption information going on. You absolutely should. And I bring up an example where what if I'm using a NuGet package that is a, th a third party system that I thought I could trust and I've been using updates for a while. What I didn't know is I brought in a vulnerability. Now it's sniffing the network and yeah. it's trying to send data out. Right. So you do want to uh, encrypt that in communication, even on a private network, and maybe even go so far as to controlling uh, outbound communications from your microservices and going, wait, it this microservice is only allowed to talk to this thing over here, maybe this load balancer or something else, these other endpoints. It's not allowed to go to the internet. It never yeah. should. Yeah, and it's just a great policy thinking like, Again, I'm going to go too networky on this whole thing, but now I can also do a bunch of port filtering and so forth. It's like there is a very limited way that you can communicate with this particular API. Um, how does the cloud impact all of this thing? Because now, now I'm thinking about the API inter services that that Azure brings to me to limit number of transactions, to set rules like that and so forth, so I don't have to code it again. The cool part about the cloud is we get infinite scale. And so... If I need to scale up my microservice, if I suddenly get slash dotted or reddited and I need to get infinite scale, I can start to tune these microservices, um, have a lot more instances of them and let them start to grow organically that way. In the olden days, when I had the monolith, I just have to keep throwing a bigger machine at it. There mm -hmm. was no separation between the parts. Microservices allows us to scale those pieces that need the additional capacity while right. not scaling the pieces that don't need it. Yeah, I think that's a real valid point. It's like that granularity helps a lot. And also, and you've, again, you talked about this earlier, you could easily code them in different languages too without a whole lot of drama. Do I build this simply as a, a Lambda or as a serverless implementation, an Azure function, something like that for this particular piece? Or is this better coded in F-sharp because it's got some algorithmic behavior and so forth. And this team will do a better job of a faster implementation of it and just wrap it behind an API. You don't need to know the language. And maybe the other parts of the system are uh, can only run on Windows, but now this microservice can run on Linux. Mm -hmm. And th so having going being in the cloud is going to uh, provide you a lot of other operating system options. And, and to Rob's point, and a lot quicker ability to uh, scale them. Yeah, and, I, and there's just cost controls there too. Like you start being, you get pieces of this migrated over to .NET Core and now it runs brilliantly on Linux and you look at how much less that service is, is than the Windows instance. Mm. And to the point about Kubernetes is you can also bring in uh, scaling. So when you have your Black Friday type of uh, events where you're that heavy load, you can have some scaling brought in there. So yeah, to your point too, is you can uh, control cost so that you're, you'll take the hit for Black Friday uh, volume of, of hits, 
but not the other times. Yeah. Well, it's just a knob on the app service. But I think Kubernetes is a better <laughs> job of it. Uh, last topic. I know we're running low on time here. What does it mean to be have a healthy microservice? What is that? Healthy depends a lot on uh, your definition of what working means. And so you can kind of define it by number of requests per second or response time or queue length or CPU usage. There's lots of different pieces that you can measure there. Ultimately, when you're starting to look at this data, we break this into three sections where I have logging, I have tracing, and I have metrics. Three different views into this thing. Logging is kind of our traditional thing where I have a particular event. This is the date time, and this is what happened. Here's the stack trace. Mm -hmm. By comparison with tracing, we are able to keep track of who called me and who I call. So I have a parent activity ID, and I can use that as I spawn child activities. And maybe these are function calls, or maybe they're calling into external services. And so I now have a log of how this request moved through my system. It's sort of like a stack trace on steroids. Exactly. And then the third piece is metrics, where I say, what happened in this time frame? How many requests per hour or per minute? How many exceptions per minute? And so with these three different views into the system, I can say, okay, let me take a look at the metrics. Um, it looks like this system is running a little hot or I've got too many 500 errors. Okay, now let me uh, take a look at the logs and see the stack traces. Now, why did that happen? Let me flip over to the traces. And now I can say, oh, yeah, this other microservice called me with invalid data. I probably need to tune that outside microservice to be able to make its validation pass the validation that I need for my microservice. Having all three pieces is really helpful to be able to diagnose the system. And here in chapter seven, we walk through adding each of those pieces in your system. Now, maybe you don't need all three or maybe you do, um, but we show an example of kind of a legacy built-in system. Um, we also show an example of a standard NuGet package that is able to accomplish things. Serilog is amazing. And we also take a look into the future with OpenTelemetry. OpenTelemetry is a new standard that allows us to add currently tracing to our apps in a very elegant way. And it is not a Microsoft thing. It's industry standard. And so nice. I might have OpenTelemetry hooks into external applications or um, into calling systems where I can pass in my activity ID and receive their parent activity ID. And so you get to kind of play with, you know, what's built in, what can I pull from NuGet, and what can I use that's industry standard to be able to take these concepts further. The, uh, yeah, the open telemetry piece, I mean, it's, it's a big open source project. I haven't seen a lot of utilization on the .NET side yet. It's, I think it comes out of Java, doesn't it? Uh, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, this is unrelated to microservices, but at, at Couchbase, our SDKs, implement open telemetry mm -hmm. and that includes our .NET uh, libraries as well. So it may not be a, a well accepted standard yet, but it's definitely getting there. And it sounds like it plays well with others. It's always a good thing. Well, and I also think in terms of like the Azure APIs as a way to do a lot of this, if you if you're running it in Azure, especially the I have a bad client, right? That they it's it's working fine, you know, because you, if you just count the blue errors, song, thing. isn't yeah. it? Isn't that a blue? <laughs> I had a bad client. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> but what, one bad client that's hammering you or is the one passing weird parameters and so forth. And yeah, you should fix it. You should fix your code so it doesn't do that. But at the same time, it's like, why is this client making these wacky calls? 
Yeah. So, you know, being able to get that kind of telemetry to go all the way up to it was this customer or this app that's making that call that's causing that set of errors. Yeah. And that that goes back to one of the complaints. We, we started talking about microservices under fire. And one of the complaints is bugs become distributed bugs. Yes. <laughs> and this is a way that you can tackle that and figure out, did it originate from this service or is it caused by another service or another service on down the line? Mm. Yeah, true enough. And often you have like cascading bugs too, where initial call, you know, didn't work right, but it didn't fail either. And it passed it along and made things worse. Uh, great book, guys. Well done. Congratulations. Yeah. I know it was a big effort to get it done. Thank you. I, and thanks for having us here. It's, it's really appreciated. I don't know. Congratulations. Hey, you're welcome. I can't wait till we can all hang out in person again. One day. Yes. One of the things I particularly like about this book is we're not so much teaching technology <laughs> as we're teaching methodologies, architecture skills. And so mm. we happen to use .NET in our examples, but you could learn the same architecture skills and apply them to different technologies if that's more your thing. Yeah. Are you guys planning on going to Dev Intersection in April? TBD for me. To be decided. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sean? We're, we're uh, I'd love to if I can. Rob, you're probably going, right? I hope so. I don't know if I've gotten any talks picked yet, but I did just see a couple of days ago that I get to go to NDC Porto. That'll be really fun. That'll be great. We'll be there for that one, too. I think the cutoff for Devint was like the week we're recording this. So, yeah, you'll probably find out next week, man. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time this show launches, I'll um, have we'll know my good or bad news. <laughs> yeah, we'll have answers anyway. I'm sure it'll right. be fine. I'll be crying into my .NET Rocks mug here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.